Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, my guest is Alan Solo. Mr. Solo is a public affairs consultant, political advisor, and notable leader in the U.S. Jewish community. He is the former chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, having met with leaders of multiple countries around the world. In addition, he served as chairman of JCC Association of North America, the chairman of Chicago's Jewish Community Relations Council, president of the Jewish Community Centers of Chicago, president of Young Men's Jewish Council, and as a member of the board of the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago, including on its executive committee. He also served as a trustee of the Jewish Federations of North America and was a director of Sinai Health Systems. In addition, Mr. Solo is the former chairman of Interfaith Youth Corps, a national organization promoting interfaith dialogue and service projects on college campuses. He is a member of the Board of Advisors of the Truman National Security Project and is the vice chair of the Israel Policy Forum. He graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School and served as a partner at the international law firm of DLA Piper. Mr. Solo was a senior advisor and national co-chair of the 2012 Obama re-elect campaign and accompanied the former president on his first trip to Israel in 2006 and served as an advisor to President Obama and his administration on Middle East policy. Today, Mr. Solo joins me as an expert to discuss the current crisis playing out between Israel and the Gaza Strip. Alan Solo, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure to be with you. Currently, many media outlets are referring uh, to the complex relationships throughout the Middle East as complicated. But this is a euphemism unworthy of that reference. However, when dealing with matters of war, the media also refers to these situations as escalations, conflicts, or even at times skirmishes. Now, I'm not sure your take on this current situation, but anytime an adversary is dropping a bomb on top of my house, I would consider that war. Now, is Israel currently at war? And if not, what would you describe uh, would be the state of the current situation? So there's a history uh, in the area of intermittent conflict, um, which sometimes rises to the level which could accurately be described as a small-scale war. I think there's a reluctance sometimes to describe it as a war because the leaders of the West Bank, Hamas, don't represent a country per se. And I think sometimes as a matter of uh, legalistic interpretation, uh, wars are between countries and not between non-state actors and states. But what's happening in the Middle East right now and along the Gaza Strip, the firing of missiles, thousands of missiles by Hamas into Israel proper and the reaction by Israel by sending smart bombs uh, into Gaza uh, where many people are dying um, on both sides of the border could fairly be classified um, as a war. And the fact of the matter is, as I think you accurately put it, it doesn't really matter what you call it. 
Um, the fact is, is that there has been serious military engagement there now for uh, almost two weeks, and uh, both military personnel and civilians um, are dying and being injured, and that's something that requires our attention and requires, I think, the United States and other international actors to attempt to calm the situation and uh, bring about, at a minimum, a ceasefire. Well, we'll get into the responses of of other stakeholders' interest level in, in the region. But before we do that, let's go back to 2005, when Israel actually began troop withdrawal from Gaza. And it seems that shortly thereafter, as a result of that troop withdrawal, in 2007, Hamas actually took control of the Gaza Strip. Would you say that that's accurate, or was that a situation that would have proceeded with or without Israeli troop withdrawal? So I think that it's largely accurate. Anything that happens surrounding Israel, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, the Palestinian territories overall, uh, it has multiple layers of complexity involved. But that's generally right. In 2005, Israel, which had certain settlements in Gaza, as well as an active military presence, in a controversial move inside Israel, and I was there in the summer of 2005 while this was being debated, Israel closed its settlements, for, in some cases forcibly carried settlers who had lived in the the area in the Gaza Strip since shortly after the 1967 war, removed them and relocated them back into Israel, turned over control of the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority held parliamentary elections uh, in the area, uh, I believe in 2006, and Hamas uh, won uh, a majority of the parliamentary delegates from the Gaza Strip and then eventually took over control in 2007, I believe, of the Gaza Strip and exerts full authority there and has the military control um, of Gaza. Now, it's unlikely that that could have happened had Israel not withdrawn its active presence in 2005, because certainly Israel has a sufficiently powerful army to have prevented a Hamas takeover of Gaza. And one of the arguments that the Israeli right made before the withdrawal in 2005, and certainly have capitalized on subsequent to the withdrawal and the takeover of Gaza by Hamas, uh, a more militant group than the Fatah, which uh, governs the West Bank as part of the Palestinian Authority, the argument among those on the right in Israel was that this would lead to a severe security difficulty and that eventually uh, Hamas would uh, use Gaza as a means to attack Israel, given the fact that uh, Hamas's stated position uh, is that the state of Israel is an illegitimate foreign body placed into the Middle East, and therefore uh, it uh, has never uh, acknowledged the Oslo Accords or any of the other uh, steps towards peace. So, yes, I think the Israeli withdrawal did have something to do with it. Having said that, I would I would just add that had, during the time that Israel 
did fully occupy Gaza. There was plenty of violence in Gaza before 2005. There were skirmishes on a regular basis involving the Israeli Defense Forces and Hamas and other like-minded groups among Palestinians. And one of the reasons that Israel chose to withdraw was it was expending a lot of military energy to govern close to 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. And it was losing soldiers there as well due to violence. So the violence predates the 2005 withdrawal. I think there's an argument to to be made that it got worse after the 2005 withdrawal because Hamas then had the ability to position and shoot rockets into Israel, which would have been very difficult for them to do uh, prior to 2005. You know, after that 2007 Battle of Gaza, in which Hamas did take full control of the Gaza Strip, Egypt joined Israel in an economic blockade of the Gaza Strip, along with U.S., Canada, the EU, Japan. Uh, They've all classified Hamas as a terrorist organization. Now, you mentioned that Hamas doesn't recognize Israel, but I think it might be even fair to say that Hamas has made it clear that not only is their goal the liberation of Palestine, but basically that includes the elimination of Israel as we know it to be today. With this being the position of Hamas, what, if any, diplomatic efforts do you see as a possibility for effectiveness in establishing security in the region? So the first thing I would say is is that that's the stated position of Hamas and lived up to their stated position many times, as is reflected in the current situation. Having said that, it's pretty clear that there's always been a back channel between Hamas and the Israelis, either secretly and directly, um, although there's no confirmation of that, but clearly through the Egyptian intermediators, since Gaza borders on both Egypt and Israel. And in previous conflicts, when we've seen a ceasefire, they've been generally brokered by the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are talking to both parties and, as I said, act as an intermediary. So there's a question to be asked whether under certain circumstances, Hamas would be willing to change its position and recognize Israel in the event that a more global arrangement was made, which recognized the Palestinian state. A part of what goes on in the West Bank and part of Hamas's position is a reflection of the political battle inside of the Palestinian national movement for superiority between uh, Fatah, which is led by Mahmoud Abbas, known as Abu Mazen, who is the elected leader of the Palestinian Authority, but there has not been an election there for many, many years. And one of the sparks of the current controversy, frankly, is that There was an election scheduled and canceled by Abu Mazen. But there's a battle for the hearts and minds of Palestinians between Hamas and Fatah, led by Abu Mazen. And part of the flame that was lit here was a reaction to the cancellation of the election and other events that we can get into, which positioned Hamas to to say that they were the stronger defenders of the Palestinian national cause. And one of the ways that they were prepared to demonstrate that uh, was by launching attacks uh, into Israel. So that is kind of an underlying 
uh, political situation. The question is, is whether or not if, for instance, Hamas either was fully integrated into a government that included its political opponents from Fatah or whether or not uh, Hamas otherwise legitimately gained power, it might modify its position in exchange for concessions from Israel that would uh, recognize two states for two people. And there are some Israelis, I would say, on the left who claim to have had contact with leadership of Hamas who believe that that would be the case. But nothing is for certain in that regard. My own view is that the current situation is not sustainable, that the various parties, and especially the extremists, both in the Palestinian national movement and in Israel, see it to their advantage to have the current instability last forever. They both get political gains out of it. As I said a few moments ago, Hamas you know, gains an advantage by portraying itself as the stronger defender of the Palestinian people. The Israeli right benefits from saying we have an enemy on our borders and we can't give up any of the land that we might philosophically want to keep for other reasons, but have trouble justifying. So we use security as the basis to make that argument. And therefore, they contribute to this ongoing cycle of uh, violence that we seem to see um, every few years. Therefore, uh, I think that uh, somebody needs to be, uh, many people, frankly, need to be more dynamic in uh, thinking about different type of approach than managing the current situation and move more boldly uh, towards a, a permanent arrangement that would recognize uh, an independent uh, Palestinian state while at the same time providing safety and security for the state of Israel. And certainly uh, during the uh, last term of the Obama administration, Secretary Kerry worked endlessly in that direction to no avail. I have to say that I once uh, had a conversation with my then law partner, uh, Senator George Mitchell, who had been the uh, United States envoy to the Middle East during the first uh, Obama term, but previously in the Clinton administration had been the mediator who helped bring peace uh, in the battle uh, for Northern Ireland between the British and the dissidents in Northern Ireland. And, you know, I forget what the exact number of days were, so I'm going to get the story not exactly right. But Senator Mitchell said to me, I said to him, how did you eventually get the parties together in Northern Ireland? And he said, well, I went back to them for 700 days and for 699 days, they said no. And on the 700th day, they said yes. And so his point was that you can't be discouraged if you see the solution you have to persist. You have to figure out how to make the parties um, see the light. And you have to try to give them assistance and incentive in order to get to a better place. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned 2014, because in 2014, Israel did launch a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. And as you mentioned, John Kerry is credited with negotiating a truce that resulted in the withdrawal of those Israeli forces. However, one might say the invasion was successful in forcing Hamas to stand down and halt their aggression toward Israel. Would you see a scenario currently where Israel would invade Gaza during this crisis? Well, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think it's not likely. The 
cost-benefit analysis from the Israeli side has generally been that ground invasion will not significantly advance Israel's military position beyond what they're able to accomplish through air power and will put Israeli troops at substantial risk. You know, one of the things that is, I guess, unfortunate in a certain way is that, you know, depending on your perspective, but just in terms of the risk analysis is, and the United States is, it did the same thing in places like Kosovo. You know, when you have superior air power, you can, and you have high level of intelligence about targets, you can do a lot of damage without very much risk to your own troops. And so that's why Israel generally prefers not to use ground troops in Gaza. But look, uh, you know, Israel in 2014, once again, was responding to aggressions by Hamas. It carried out various activities in Gaza. It did push Hamas back. But here we are, a number of years later, and, you know, it's the same old, same old. So, you know, those are temporary solutions. I think from Israel's, at least from Israel's leadership's perspective, if your enemy says that we want to eliminate you and what you have to do is undertake a military operation every half a dozen years or so in order to thwart their effectiveness, then that's what you need to do in order to uh, protect your citizens and your sovereignty. The problem is, is that's not a long-term solution. Well, clearly, because we've seen this cycle every couple of years, it's almost like a repeat cycle every few years. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of, of external stakeholders and their interest in the region, and if I can for a moment focus on the United States, the U.S., along with, as I mentioned earlier, several other countries, has designated Hamas as a terrorist organization. So if that is the case, then why is the U.S. Department of Justice not prosecuting those who are funneling money to Hamas and seizing U.S. assets of foreign entities that are funding Hamas? So there's, there's been, I believe, um, some prosecutions of people in the United States who have provided funding to terror organizations. But most of the funding for Hamas does not come from private citizens. It comes from through international aid, and it comes from other governments in the Gulf states, for instance. And with respect to much of that, Israel acquiesces. And they do that, and it's done primarily for humanitarian reasons. The challenge is, is that there is lots of aid that can be provided for humanitarian reasons, and the goods that are purchased or supplied in connection with that humanitarian relief are what are sometimes referred to as dual purpose goods. And they could be used for good causes and they could also be used for bad causes. You can provide, allow the provision of supplies uh, into Gaza in order to allow people to build houses but that same construction equipment can be used to build tunnels to support the military uh, work of Hamas. So there's this ongoing tension for um, Israel. Look, it is not in Israel's interest for uh, people in Gaza or in the West Bank, for that matter, to be economically oppressed. That only causes, first of all, it's inappropriate, improper, 
from a humanitarian standpoint. Second of all, does not encourage good relations uh, with your neighbors if they regard you as being culpable for their economic suffering and their inability to get enough food to eat and their high unemployment rate. And that is, in fact, what has allowed Hamas to build political power in Gaza because it has been able to portray itself both as a military organization, but also as a political slash social service organization, which is the body that is helping Gazans get jobs, get food, have useful, meaningful lives. And as long as there isn't adequate economy or for, or for that matter, freedom of movement in either West Bank or Gaza, people are going to be unhappy. And the likelihood from Israel's perspective is that they are going to turn their anger at Israel. And there, I, I don't think that that's entirely fair, but it's not entirely unfair um, either. I mean, the Israelis would argue that they withdrew from Gaza, they've withdrawn from the West Bank, that the people who live there have a great deal of autonomy, they have a form of self-government, they could build their own economy, but the reality is, is that Israel continues to exercise a considerable amount of control as to what goes in and what goes out. And, you know, for instance, the Gaza electricity grid is very dependent on cooperation from Israel. That has a potentially, at least, a debilitating effect on the ability of Gazans to act independently. Well, you know, it's very interesting because after Hamas took over the control of Gaza in 2007, I think it's one could easily argue that the living conditions and the the day-to-day experience of life for the private citizens of Gaza and removing Hamas from the scenario has actually been quite deplorable. And the economic blockade has really only hurt the, that it obviously has not hurt Hamas. It has hurt the private citizens of the Gaza Strip. You know, there's extensive discussion that surrounds a two-state solution. And this has been going on, obviously, really since the beginning uh, of the of the creation of Israel as we know it today. That two-state solution would establish homelands for both Israelis and Palestinians. But there's a significant element involved in that two-state solution, and that would be the city of Jerusalem. And based on the historical importance of the city of Jerusalem to Jews, Christians, and Arabs, is it possible to reach a peaceful solution allowing all stakeholders to have an interest in sharing that holy site? Well, before I get to answering that question, which is just a great question and is a lot at the heart of the conflict, I just want to say, be clear, I'm no fan of Hamas. You know, I'm trying to give you an analysis of why I think the situation exists as it does. But there's very little question that Hamas is a terrorist organization has bad motives, does little to control other organizations on the ground, which are even more extremist than Hamas. And it has not been a force for good in the Middle East generally or for the Palestinians in particular. But 
the point that I'm trying to make here is they are a fact of life in the Middle East, and the Israelis have to deal with them, and the rest of the Palestinian authority has to deal with them as well. That is what makes the situation complicated. You can't wish them away. True. And speaking of not wishing them away, you can't wish away the inherent problems that exist around Jerusalem. So, you know, the reality is, the, the, the interesting reality is, having, you know, been to Jerusalem countless times um, over the years, is, is that generally speaking, although certainly not over the last few weeks, day-to-day life in Jerusalem is reasonably good. It's probably, for the most part, for the average Jewish Israeli, better than it is for the average Palestinian resident of Jerusalem. But I would say that the Palestinian residents of Jerusalem have a better life experience than most Palestinians living other places. And the day-to-day, there's not violence as a general matter um, in Jerusalem. It is a largely divided city by neighborhood. There are Arab neighborhoods and Jewish neighborhoods. But when I'm in Jerusalem, I travel pretty freely in the Arab neighborhoods and meet Palestinian friends there um, from time to time and have meals there. And there are many Palestinians who work and have friends in the Jewish sector of Jerusalem. So when the two-state solution has been discussed, there's been a number of different uh, approaches as to what one does with Jerusalem. They generally revolve around two basic principles. First is that Largely speaking, with very few exceptions, there are well-defined historic neighborhoods where Jews live and neighborhoods where Palestinians live. And therefore, the notion has always been that you would carve out the Jewish neighborhoods to remain part of Israel as part of the two-state solution, and you would carve out the neighborhoods that are largely populated by Palestinians and Arabs to be part of the Palestinian state. That is, that's not perfect because there are some mixed neighborhoods, but that's a uh, solvable problem, I think. The more difficult problem is um, what you do with the old city of Jerusalem, which is the center of the, uh, all the three Abrahamic faiths have installations and holy places there. The Israelis refer to it as the Temple Mount and have the Kotel or Western Wall there, perhaps what I think many people would consider the holiest place in the Jewish religion. The Muslims uh, on the top uh, of the Temple Mount have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the most important mosques in the Muslim religion, maybe the third most important as I understand it, but very important. Jerusalem being a very important city in the narrative and history of, of Islam and of, uh, of Arabs culturally, I think it's fair to say. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is also located in the very same neighborhood. And so the theory has always been that there would be some type of joint administration uh, of the holy places um, of Jerusalem. Nobody's exactly articulated that as to how they would do that. Uh, some people have said that God will govern uh, the holy places in Jerusalem. Um, but even today, by and large, for instance, the Al-Aqsa Mosque 
um, which Jews used to refer to as the Dome of the Rock, is governed by the Muslim religious authorities. It's not, even though it's part of the territory that Israel claims uh, as its own because it's in the heart of Jerusalem, uh, which Israel regards as its capital, Israel has acceded to the wishes of the Muslim authorities that they have control of Al-Aqsa Mosque itself. And while there's, on the other hand, while there's generally access to the top of the Temple Mount where the mosque is uh, located, there are times when the Israeli military authorities close off the access to the mosque, which is one of the things that happened at times uh, in the lead up to this current series of violence that we're seeing. Well, according to major global papers, including the New York Times, there are reporters that are indicating that this whole conflict actually happened because of the raid on the Aqsa Mosque in order to silence the prayers during Ramadan so that the Israeli president could give a presentation at the Western Wall in recognition of the 50th celebration of Jerusalem Day. Now, help us understand the significance of the location as it related to the president's presentation on that specific day. And was it so significant that no other possible place could have been chosen to have given that presentation? So I don't claim to have an expertise on the exact sequence of events that occurred over the last few weeks. And so I can't vouch for the accuracy of the reporting, but I can talk a little bit about what the geography uh, is and why the president of Israel or other leaders uh, might deem it important to speak at that place at that time. You know, I don't think people understand the proximity of the actual relationship of these holy sites. I mean, they literally are like right next to each other. They're, they're actually literally on top of each other. Yeah, right. The The uh, Western Wall is the Western Wall of the Second Temple, I believe. And the Aqsa Mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque, is on top, literally on top of the Western Wall. So there have been many incidents over the years of unhappy Muslims or Arabs or Palestinians, let's just say opponents of uh, Israel, hurling stones from the top of the Temple Mount down at uh, those praying at the Western Wall. The Western Wall is actually an excavated site, and there's a large plaza that leads to the Western Wall so that you look up at the top of the Temple Mount, and it's pretty easy to look down and throw stones and 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 do damage. And that's been uh, a too frequent occurrence over the years, and it's a it's a it's a regular point of tension. So why why would the Israeli leadership want to be present there on Jerusalem Day? So to go back to the 1967 uh, Six Day War, defensive war launched by Israel. Um, in response to the imminent attack by uh, Egypt, which was joined by Syria and Jordan, and in which the Israeli uh, defense forces um, 
from my perspective, miraculously defeated their enemies in six days. And one of the things that they were able to do was uh, reunite Jerusalem. After the 1948 armistice, uh, Jerusalem was a divided city between West Jerusalem, which ended up being controlled by the Israelis, and East Jerusalem, which ended up being controlled by the Jordanians. And there was United Nations presence uh, along the seam line there. And in 1967, probably the most dramatic uh, victory in the Six-Day War was the battle for Jerusalem uh, when uh, Israel successfully drove the Jordanian army out of Jerusalem. And amongst the most uh, dramatic photos, iconic photos um, in Israeli history is the then Defense Minister Moshe Dayan and uh, the uh, several generals, I think one of whom was uh, the head of the IDF at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, marching towards the Western Wall, which Jews had not been able to access since 1948. That part of the of Jerusalem, the old city, had been under Jordanian control. Um, so it's a very important part of, of Israeli history. I was going to say modern Israeli history, except the state of Israel was uh, 19 years old at the time of uh, that that occurred. Right. Um, but many, so Jerusalem, the conquering of Jerusalem, key part of Israeli history, iconic uh, moment of the Six-Day War, honored in many ways um, in Israeli culture. And therefore, you know, it's like the president of the United States going to the Lincoln Memorial on the 4th of July. So I know we only have a few minutes left. We're running short on time here. But I want to go back to a possible two-state solution conversation. And if the Palestinians removed Hamas from power in Gaza and reinstated their former system of government, do you think Israel would be open to a two-state solution and stop the removal of Palestinians from the West Bank? So I think that uh, it's unknown. I think that that would be uh, helpful and encouraging. But there's also a significant amount of the Israeli population who, either because we've seen so many years of these battles and and they've lost so much confidence in their neighbors, there's now, and, and also because there are some Israelis who believe in what's called Greater Israel, which is an Israel that's much larger uh, than what's currently internationally recognized. There are some Israelis who are not interested um, in a two-state solution and believe that Israel should just take a broader swath of uh, land. Then there are a group of Palestinians today um, who uh, believe in what I would call a binational state. And that is for them to say, look, we're not interested in an independent Palestinian state anymore. We've been controlled by the Israelis now for almost 54 years. Just give us... Israeli citizenship. We'll take the benefits of Israeli citizenship. We'll vote. The Israelis are not very much interested in that because the number of Palestinians who would become Israeli citizens under that formula would be almost equal to the number of Jewish citizens of the state of Israel. And arguably, if one believes that the purpose for Israel is to be the homeland of the Jewish people and the Jewish state, 
that would be very, very difficult to sustain under those circumstances. As it is, the Jewish population of Israel is only about 75%. There are about 20% of its citizens who are Arabs and who have a full rights uh, as citizens, including voting rights and judicial rights. That's not to say there isn't discrimination uh, against the minority from time to time, but there are but Israel already has a large population of, of Arab citizens, non-Jews. Well, Prime Minister Netanyahu hasn't been able to secure a coalition government in four elections in the past two years. So how's this playing into the instability in the region? Uh, there, there is a lot of analysis right now that's suggesting that his strategy is to head to a fifth election. And that's one of the reasons that this current conflict, war, um, has gone on for as long as it has, because the prime minister is trying to paint himself as the security prime minister, and being in the middle of a conflict puffs up uh, his image as a uh, protector of Israel. And it has had some political effect. The alternative to a Netanyahu government that was being considered uh, over the last several weeks was the first Israeli government that would have included uh, amongst its supporters the Arab parties. And it was a kind of a strange coalition. It was a coalition which included some from the center, from from the center left, some from the right who were just anti-Netanyahu rightists and wanted to be done with him, and then with some support from at least one of the Arab parties. A number of those rightist parties who were prepared to be part of the coalition have now indicated that in the face of the current conflict, they could not be part of a government that would depend on an Arab party in order to keep it in power. And so many people think that the Netanyahu strategy here is to force a fifth election. There's no question that the instability in Israel is not helpful. But let me say one thing about the two-state solution, because as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, I am the vice chair of uh, Israel Policy Forum. And Israel Policy Forum was formed in 1993 after the signing of the Oslo Accords in order to promote a two-state solution. And that continues to be our goal. And I think that is the correct solution, both for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people around the world, and for Palestinian people and their supporters to recognize the legitimate rights that each have. There are two conflicting narratives in the Middle East. There is the Israeli narrative and there is the Palestinian narrative. Both are true to their believers and both have objectively certain truths to them. And the key to moving forward, I believe, towards two states is for those of us who primarily see the Israeli side of the equation and understand the Israeli narrative to gain a deeper understanding and sympathy for the Palestinian narrative and for those who are sympathetic with the Palestinians to understand and learn to work with and recognize the validity of the Israeli narrative. As I said earlier, we're not going to wish away the national aspirations of either people the Jews were dispossessed of their ability to own land essentially anywhere in the world for thousands of years until they were able to return to their historic homeland in what is now Israel. And despite the fact that they were homeless for thousands of years, they never lost their desire to return to the promised land. 
And now we're in a situation where the Palestinian people have a narrative in which they find themselves dispossessed from their land. And the notion that the Palestinians are any less human than the Israelis and any more likely to give up their national aspirations than Jewish people were around the world for thousands of years is, I think, a very mistaken notion. And we should, instead of trying to determine which party has the superior narrative, we should try to understand that in this small place, there is room for both narratives. And if we work on coexistence, and there are lots of projects, by the way, it's, it always seems bleak at a time of war, but there are dozens and dozens of coexistence projects between Palestinians and Israelis. There are people who live on opposite sides of the Green Line who have worked together for decades. If we work uh, at deeper understanding, if we work at coexistence, if we allow creative solutions to assure Israelis and Palestinians that upon a two-state agreement, they will each be able to live peacefully and with adequate security assurances, then there is a chance to move forward. In the absence of that, what we will see is this continuing battle between the narratives, and we'll see internally, politically, on each side, a battle as to who in that place best articulates the strongest part of that narrative, and that is going to drive divisiveness within each society and therefore divisiveness between the two peoples. As I said earlier on, that is a situation which I don't think can sustain itself. And while I think that the Israelis have from time to time indicated a strong willingness to take significant steps in the direction of the recognition uh, and help to create a Palestinian state, they have not yet achieved that goal. They haven't yet built sufficient confidence among the Palestinians. That's not necessarily the Israelis' fault in full or in part. But my view is that the blame game is about the past. And in order to move forward, we can't forget the past. We need to learn about our mistakes from the past, but we need to move forward with a new vision um, for the future. Because as long as we're tied to the past, we will continue to repeat the situation we're in now. It's a situation which is dreadful, I think, for both Israelis and Palestinians. And for those who uh, have relations or care about people on either side of the conflict, and more importantly, for human beings in general, that's not, in my view, acceptable. Well, allow me to extend my sincere wish that your efforts as you lead as vice chair of the Israel Policy Forum going forward, that you do find the path to a consensus where all of these human beings can come together one day and live peacefully. Mr. Solo, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show and for your invaluable insight. And thank you for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowake. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, 
Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. It is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.